you know, scanning around up front here, um, realizing I'm wearing the wrong color for the first Sunday of football season. As a Steeler fan, Don, this is in your honor. <laughs> um, yeah, Don really didn't wear black and gold. I'm, anyways. Um, but um, I'm going to start with a quiz for the football fans among us, uh, kind of in honor of this being the first Sunday of the NFL. I realize some of you, that's not a thing, so I've got another story after this one. But uh, when I, a quick quiz. When I, I'm going to name six names, and you tell me what they have in common. Chad Pennington, Giovanni Carmezzi, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, Chris Redman, T. Martin, Mark Bolger, and Spurgeon Wynn. Very mediocre quarterbacks, that's what Josh just said. Yeah, I would agree with that. Very mediocre quarterbacks that were all drafted before Tom Brady. So it's amazing how much time and energy, the scouting that goes on to try to pick the best football players available every spring. Uh, every one of those individuals, most of which, I mean, as a Steeler fan, really T. Martin <laughs> uh, picked the head of Tom Brady. Um, Anyways, it's, it's hard. You look at it and realize paid professionals, that's their job, to examine the talent and try to pick the right players. And yet six quarterbacks went ahead of, and this pains me to say it as a Steeler fan, arguably the best, if not one of the best quarterbacks of all time. That really pains me to say that. But yeah, T, T. Martin. Um, anyways. So picking someone's talent, looking at someone and seeing what is within, what is in them, what, what ability do they have, what talent they have. Uh, there's another story, maybe you're more of a music fan. Any of you know the name of David Slagle? I didn't know it until I looked at the story, but um, actually, never mind, it's not David Slagle. He's the one who wrote the article. Dick, Dick Rowe, anyone know Dick Rowe, that name? Dick Rowe. He's one of the most famous talent scouts in the music industry. Obviously not too famous beyond the music industry, but um, he signed the Rolling Stones. He discovered and signed the Rolling Stones, arguably one of the most well-known rock bands in history. But as much as he'd like to highlight that success in picking the Rolling Stones, he also is known for an event in 1962 when a very unpolished quartet auditioned for Rowe leaving him totally unimpressed. And, and he actually not only rejected this quartet, this band, but as they were leaving, told them, groups with guitars are on the way out. Any idea who that band was? The Beatles. Yeah. Within one year of Rose's rejection, the Beatles began their historic British invasion. They hit number one in the Billboard Top 100, with I Want to Hold Your Hand, and went on uh, to achieve uh, a then record seven simultaneous number one singles in both the US and uh, in the UK. Obviously, we're kind of flawed. Even the people that are, judged, or that, that are gifted in judging talent and evaluating, sometimes we miss the mark. And, and our story today is, is uh, about God choosing. Um, we, as much as there are there's a lot of theology that sometimes ends up on bumper stickers that is really flawed. 
and I can't remember the exact wording of the bumper sticker, but I've seen it in a couple times, uh, that God, or that man chose King Saul, but God chose David. If you read the story, that's not exactly right. The reality is God chose both. God chose and anointed Saul as king, and God chose and anointed David as king. Saul had every opportunity to be the king that David became. Uh, and yet, that, idea, that issue of, of David replacing King Saul and the choosing of, of someone who doesn't seem to fit the bill for who you would want to be king, that's the story we're going to look at today in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And, and I love this story, but the reality is there's, there's, there are stories throughout Scripture that have this same theme, is that again and again, God chooses unlikely people to do his work. Again and again, God chooses unlikely people to do his work. It's, it's often the weakest. It's often the smallest. It's often the person that doesn't have any position or power that God chooses and says, you're the man, you're the woman who I'm going to use. And, and that is what we see with 1 Samuel today in chapter 16. We're continuing. If you've been working through Mission 119, you've been in and you're on schedule. You've been in Samuel for the last couple of weeks. Um, if you're not, just we're going to read the text and, and you can go back and look at it. But I shared the last couple of weeks that um, 1 Samuel is one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament. Uh, and so some of the things that it tells us about who God is and, and the relationship God wants us to have and what it means to walk with him. But today in chapter 16, it specifically is, is Samuel, the prophet, priest, and who also served as a judge for God's people before King Saul, is told by God to go and to find and anoint another king while King Saul is still on the throne. Um, so Imagine the political turmoil of that. There's someone already sitting in the throne, on the, king, the throne. King Saul has already been anointed, has already been serving as king. But, but Saul, if you go back and read the stories, he starts rationalizing some of his behavior and he's not walking fully in obedience to God. And God's spirit departs from him. And that sets up what we read in chapters 16 today. Let's go ahead and read, uh, follow along with me. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do, what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me whom, or him whom I declare to you. So there's a lot going on here with Samuel. Samuel is grieving the loss of a friend. He's grieving the loss of, of, of Saul, who he, is, he anointed. Who, who he walked alongside with as a counselor, as, a, as, as right there with Saul at every step of his rise to... to power and becoming the first king of Israel. And so you see the, the story begins with Samuel grieving for Saul and God saying, why are you grieving for Saul? And, and basically there's a play in the language. God actually even says that he was mourning the, the decision to, to make Saul king. 
And, and then you, it goes on to, to talk about the fact that Samuel gives, hears the instruction from God that you need to go to Bethlehem and find Jesse and anoint one of his sons. Samuel's scared. Even though he considered Saul a friend, he knows that he is going to be at risk in going to anoint another king when Saul is still on the throne. And so that sets up this story. Verse 4, says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited him to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. If you remember, if you go back and look at the previous account where, where Samuel goes to anoint Saul, Saul has this re, or Samuel has a reaction to Saul like, yeah, God, good job. You picked the right one because Saul is tall. He's beautiful. He, he meets not only God's choice, but he, he really met everyone's choice. He was the guy that people expected. He was the Chad Pennington of the draft, um, the person that people expected to, su- to succeed. He had all the right things to check off the box. Samuel is walking in a very similar situation. He's been told to go and anoint someone, king. And he sees Jesse's firstborn, and he's tall, and he's attractive. And, and, and so he thinks, well, surely this is the man. Verse 7 says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or in the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not, a man, not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. You know, not that I watch it, had no interest in watching it, but this is almost like a scene of like from The Bachelor on TV. It's like a group of men that are standing up and it's like, okay, is it this one? I can tell by people's reactions who watch the bat. No, um, <laughs> not my type of show. But the, but you see, this is this is almost like a contest. The guys are line, the sons are lining up, firstborn to the youngest, and and they appear to all be there, and it's like one by one, you're not the one, you're not the one, you're not the one. Verse 10, it says, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet a youngest, or the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. I mean, basically, David's an afterthought. Like, I mean, if Jesse has any sense of what, what Samuel's up to, um, David's babysitting the sheep. And, and all the eldest sons are there for Samuel to inspect. And so it, sa- it goes on. It sa- he says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. What's interesting is while God is clear in those previous verses that he's looking not at the outward appearance, uh, he's looking at the heart. Uh, the account is telling us, though, that David, while he's coming in kind of ruddy, and, but he's got beautiful eyes, he's handsome. 
And, and so there's, there's still some positive things that are being presented about David, but it's clear from this account that none of the people that you would have expected of Jesse's sons were considered. God had another plan. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and anoint him, anoint David, for this is he. And in verse 13 it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. When we look at this account, we see very clearly that David fits, the, fits in the, the consistent story we see throughout Scripture of God choosing the unlikely choice. He's making the unlikely choice. This isn't, David is not the one you would have expected for God to pick in this moment. And there is a clear contrast. Even though God did choose both Saul and David, there is a clear contrast that's being made here for Samuel. And it's, it's in some sense too, kind of an aside, we can sometimes fall into the trap of expecting God to always work in the same way he did before. And, and I think Samuel's kind of doing that a little bit, like, okay, I've done this before. I'm going to walk in and God's going to point out the guy and he's going to make sense because he's going to be the biggest and the brightest. And God really teaches Samuel a lesson here as well to not look at the outward appearance but to, because God judges the heart, looks to the heart. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 7. It says, uh, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But verse 7 says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or his height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God doesn't choose the oldest son. He doesn't choose the tallest son. He chooses the youngest, the smallest, the one that was forgotten to fulfill his plan and his purpose. We see this again throughout scripture of God making the unlikely choice. Think about Moses. Moses didn't speak well, and he had a record. He was a murderer. And yet God chose him to deliver his people out of Egypt. Peter and many of the disciples were a group of fishermen. The best and the brightest who had been chosen by the rabbis of the day had already chosen the best and the brightest. Peter and these other disciples were were just average men who Jesus chose to come and to follow so that they could become fishers of men. Matthew, a little bit more education, maybe a little bit more going for him, but he was a tax collector and he was hated by his own people. He was despised by his own people. And yet Jesus called him to follow. The Apostle Paul persecuted the church. And yet not only became a key leader in the, the church, God used him to write most of what we have in the New Testament. And then, just think about Jesus himself. Born in Bethlehem, in poverty, to a carpenter's son. We we see again and again that God uses the small, the humble, and those that the world would say, there's no way. God chooses the unlikely to fulfill his plan and his purpose. And, and I think that's a good reminder for all of us today because we're here, every one of us, we may not be in a place where we're chosen to be in a position like David or Saul. 
to be in a leadership role or we may, God may call us to do a lot of different things, but, but God calls and equips all of us. And, and, and if you don't know what God wants you to be doing and, you, and the, using the gifts and the abilities that he wants to give you and, and, and how you step out and rely on his power and his strength to accomplish a specific plan and purpose in your life, if you're here today and you're, you're struggling with that, I think it's important that you remember that God chooses the unlikely. Because too often we're like Moses and we, we, we tend to look at all of our flaws and look at all of our limitations and we think God can't use us. When God is looking at our hearts and, and he sees our potential and he sees what he can do through us if we're fully surrendered and obedient to him. Did you catch that last part? If we're fully surrendered and obedient to him. That's where Saul messed up. He wasn't fully surrendered and obedient. It became more about Saul than about walking in obedience to God. David is described as a man who has a heart after God, a man after God's own heart. And, and that reminds us that not only does this story tell us that God chooses the unlikely, but this key verse in verse seven highlights that truth that God looks to the heart. And again, from a Jewish understanding of the heart, we tend to, in our culture, we tend to think heart, we think emotion. And the, the Jewish understanding of heart not only included our emotion, it included our thoughts, it included our desires, it included our will, the choices that we make. It's, it's our inner man, our inner life that, that we may not show to the rest of the world, but God sees it. And the... Verse seven, that key verse in this whole section is that man sees not as a man, or the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Reminds us that God sees who we really are. He knows our thoughts. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strengths. He knows what we bring to the table. God's not going to be surprised by our flaws He's not going to be surprised by the resources and the strengths that we bring when he calls us to serve him. He knows who we are and he calls us to, and he wants us to surrender our lives to walk in obedience to him so that he can use us to fulfill his purpose. Jeremiah 17.10 says, If I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That picture of God examining the heart we see is, is that God has examined David's heart. He knows that God or that David is a man after his own heart. And, and according to Acts 13.22, the description of what is taking place in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel here, it says this in Acts 13.22, and when he had removed him, Saul, when David was re- or Saul was removed, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So that verse in Acts, looking back to this account in 1 Samuel 16, is highlighting that not only does God know David's heart, God sees David as a man after his own heart, but he also understood that David would be one who would do his will. That doesn't mean that David is perfect. And we know, and we, we, if we look at Psalm 51 and the psalm that's attributed to David after David's missteps and his sin with Bathsheba, 
David's greatest concern, and I, and I firmly believe that David had Saul in the back of his mind when he cried out, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, and c- cried out for God to create a clean heart within him. That Psalm in Psalm 51 is, is David's confession, his prayer and, and his requesting of God to continue to work in his heart and his life. So David is not perfect. David has his misstep, but even when he's confronted with his sin, In that later story, we see David not only confessed his sin, but he returned to the Lord and and sought for God to to renew the joy of his salvation in in his heart and his life so that he could continue to serve. This call of God, or this call of David reminds us, not only does God look at the heart, but when you look at the call of David and you look at Saul and the fact that Saul had every opportunity to have the success that David had, it reminds us of how critical it is for anyone, all of us, when God calls us to guard our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And again, as I said earlier, that bumper sticker theology that says man chose Saul, God chose David, that's not good theology. God chose them both. And yet God withdrew his spirit from Saul because Saul was more focused on his kingdom, his kingdom, than upon walking in obedience to God. The reality is God chose Saul, but he failed to guard his heart. He didn't walk in obedience and he loses the kingdom. David, when he was confronted by his sin, understood that if it happened to Saul, it could happen to him, and he cried out. You see the, the intensity in Psalm 51, and that he cries out, wanting not only a clean heart, but wants to have a renewed joy of, of the, the spirit in his life, and he cries out for God not to take his spirit from him. You know, over the last few months, I've been listening to a podcast um, that honestly has been hard to listen to, um, it was a podcast that was published by Christianity Today and on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Um, and it's talks, it tells the story of Mark Driscoll, pastor who early in my days of ministry, I looked up to. Didn't always like his style in a lot of ways, but he was, he, he, there was a lot of things that, that a lot of people looked to him. And, and later was discredited for his leadership practices, his abusive personality and some of the things that were happening in his life and in the life of the church. But, you know, as I listened to this, what, there, was an issue, there was a theme that kept coming up that resonated with something that Dr. Um, Martin Sanders and Rob Reamer from NIAC, I've heard say almost the exact words, is, is they talked about the danger of for pastors or any leader when their platform or their influence outpaces their character. And, and that if they grow in influence, they grow in power, they grow in a platform, but they don't have the character to sustain that, that they're being set up for trouble. That story reminds me of this scene, and it reminds me of what's going on between Saul and David, is that, that leaders have to guard their hearts. And every one of us, again, you may not be called to lead, but whatever God calls you to do, God sees what's going on inside. God doesn't, 
we enter into a relationship with God based on his grace and what we celebrated today and taking the bread and the cup based on what Jesus has done for us. It's not an issue of us being perfect. But we have to come to a place where we're willing to guard our hearts and make sure that we're fully surrendered and trusting God to be working in us and through us, not relying on our own ability, not relying on our own strengths, and not focusing on our own kingdoms and our own wants and our own needs, but doing the work that God has called us to do. And that means we need to walk in, with humility with God. And, if, and let, like David prayed at the end of Psalm 139, to, to invite God regularly to search us, to test us, to examine our lives and see if there's any wicked way within us so that God can lead us in the way everlasting. That's the type of humility that God calls not only for Saul and for David, but he calls all of us to a place where he wants to use us. He wants to work in us but we have to embrace humility and recognize it's not about us. It's about us surrendering our lives and trusting God to work in us and through us. The last point of this passage as I look at it is, is not only does God choose the unlikely and it's so critical that we guard our hearts, but it's critical for us to remember that it's the focus is not our strength, it's not our ability, it's God's anointing that empowers us for service. It's God's spirit that, that comes upon us, that enables us, empowers us to do what he calls us to do. That idea of, of Saul and then David being anointed is they were being set apart. The idea of being anointed by the spirit of God is it's set apart to be used by God. They are being set apart to serve as kings. And if God calls you, he's calling you to be set apart to, to whatever he calls you to do. And when he does that, he's not only calling us to be set apart, to dedicated to the purpose that he has given you, but that he then empowers you. He empowers you to do what he calls you to do. God never calls us without empowering us to do what he calls us to do. That's consistent throughout Scripture. God will always empower us to do whatever he calls us to do. The prophet Zechariah 4.6 4, says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In Acts 1.8, we celebrate as Christians. We're, we're called as Christ followers to be his witness, not based on our own ability, but based upon God's spirit working in us and through us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we don't have time to unpack all of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, but if you look at what God's word teaches us about every believer having a spiritual gift, it's God's spirit that gives us the gifts and the abilities we need to do what he calls us to do. And every believer has a gift. We have our natural gifts and our abilities that God can use and of how he's created us. But, but the message of spiritual gifts in the New Testament is that if anything we're lacking, God will give us the gifts and the resources, the supernatural ability to do what he calls us to do. But we have to come to a place of being willing to be surrendered, to, to allow God's spirit to fill us, to empower us to do the work he calls us to do. When I think of this story, and when I think of these points and these lessons, 
I think of a few implications for all of us today. And I want you to think for a second, is God calling you to do something? Is God, do you know what, do you know, maybe you already know what it is God has called you to do. Question then is, are you doing it? What's keeping you from doing it? Or are you still struggling? Maybe God is starting to get your attention and you're realizing that God might be calling you to serve in a specific way or to to go out and, and to share and be a witness for him in a very specific way in a specific place. Whatever God might be calling you to do, I want you to think about three things that sometimes trip us up. And one is that there are two things that trip us up and then an appropriate way to think about this, I think. There's a problem in saying, I can't. Moses said, I can't. I don't speak well. If, if God calls us to do something and, and our response is, I can't, we're basically saying we don't trust God's power, resources, or ability, or even his character to, to give us what we need to fulfill what he's called us to do. And so many of you here, and you might sense, or you're online listening, you may sense that God might be calling you to do something, but your answer is, I can't do this. I want to ask you, can you trust God to give you the resources you need? Can you trust God to give you the strength and the power, the energy, whatever it is you need to do what he's called you to do? The reality is, in some ways, there's a healthy aspect of coming to a point of saying, I can't do this. Because when we recognize that we can't, it reminds us that God can. And and that understanding helps us to avoid the second place that we can trip up, is the problem with saying, I can do this on my own. Trusting our own resources instead of trusting God's resources. Trusting our own intelligence instead of trusting God's wisdom. There are so many ways in which we can fall into the trap of just relying on our own resources and our own ability. And in in a very real way, as I reflect upon Saul, I think that's a lot of what's going on with Saul. We have to be careful that we don't rely so much on our own strength and our own resources that we fail to walk in dependence upon God and his strength. That we have to come to a place in the third position, third perspective is that God, I can't, but God can do it through me. I can't do it, but if God calls me, God can do it through me. Whatever God is calling you to do, he will give you the resources to do it. And it's, at, at the heart of it is God's spirit coming upon your life in the very presence of Jesus working in your life to fulfill his promise to work in you so that you can be a witness to this world for him. I want to leave you with a quote, and this was something the Alliance we've used regularly in the last 10, 15 years. At the heart of who we are in the Christian Missionary Alliance is we're a group of people that believe this truth, that we're ordinary people empowered by an extraordinary God. We're ordinary people empowered by an extraordinary God. It's not about us. It's about us being surrendered and trusting God, an extraordinary God to fulfill his plan and purposes in our lives, to fill us and use us. We pray with me? And, and, and as the worship team comes today, I just, I just want to encourage you, if you're here today and, and you really have been wrestling Maybe you're sensing God been nudging you to step out in faith and to do something, specifically a place of serving or a place of being involved, or maybe God is calling you to reach out to your neighbors in a very specific way or whatever God is speaking to you about today. 
I want to ask you today to think through, are, are, are you using some of those excuses? Or are you at a point where you're willing to trust that God is going to work through you so that your response is just surrender and obedience? Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, for the, the many examples in your word and throughout history of, of you choosing the weak, you choosing the small, you choosing the, the unimpressive, to use to fulfill your plan and purpose in this world. And Lord, I just pray that we would all embrace that truth, that we, that we each as just ordinary people could surrender our lives to you because you are an extraordinary God who will, who will not only call us, you will empower us to do whatever you call us to do. And Lord, whatever the specifics are of our calling, you, we know that you've called every one of us to be a witness for Jesus in this world. And I just pray that today that we would be reminded of just how critical it is to guard our hearts, to walk in humility before you. And Lord, just to trust you to be working in us and through us, to fill us with your spirit so that we might be an effective witness in this world that needs you so desperately. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.